0: Tom and I did a episode about um, uh, Development Arrested. And I think you wrote the, did you write the intro to that, Ruthie? I did indeed. That's a, it's a great book. We, we did that with Jordan Camp. And um, I don't know, that book blew me away because, you know, it's like he starts with, you know, music and just kind of, I don't know. You could do the same thing for where we live just because music is such a important part of of life here. It's It's a great book.
1: It is a great book, and it 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 in, influenced me a lot. Um, I was actually his teacher when I was still a grad school dropout. Oh, really? And he wrote a fabulous dissertation, and then that dissertation became that book. Yeah. And if you never read the whole dissertation, I urge you to do it. It's like three times the length of the book, and it's just got more <laughs> fantastic examples and analysis in it.
0: Yeah. Our <laughs> our buddy Jack Norton. he's the one that um, – recommended it to me and he told me a story about someone you know talking to Clyde Woods about like Southern California and he was like well if you're gonna tell the story of Southern California you got to start all the way back with like the Aztecs you know like he's very thorough he started you know as far back as possible yeah yeah totally Um, well um all right I'm just gonna go ahead and get started welcome to the show this week everybody we have two very special guests uh, back in the U.S., just in time for the latest environmental catastrophe, which is now a, a apparently a swarm of spiders that parachute down from the sky. Have you guys heard of this at all? <laughs> it's, no, it's no, we missed that. Uh oh. <laughs> I guess I'm
1: gonna stay home this afternoon. After all. <laughs>
0: well you know like a few i feel like a few years ago there was like these wasps that like invaded from japan and now we've got these spiders from you i think they're also from japan maybe japan just sends us everything from kudzu to invasive uh everything they don't want yeah (laughs) but i guess they should be hitting us pretty soon but yes um special guest this week Craig Gilmore and Ruth Wilson Gilmore it's been a long time coming we've talked about doing this episode for many years now um, but uh, we're glad to have you both on how, how are y'all doing today
1: really well thanks for having us good yeah we're doing great thanks
0: yeah there's like there's like a few okay you know reasons or occasions for having you guys on right now um, you know, one we'll get to in just a second. Maybe the most important for us personally is that it's the as of a week ago the five-year anniversary of this very program you are on. Uh We've oh, been. Oh wow! I didn't <laughs>
2: even know that snuck right past me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's that uh, yeah, the- the
1: week is everybody. It's an yeah. honor to
0: be here. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, half a decade and it's it is appropriate because we all got started in, you know, we we all got started in community radio here, which I'm sure you'll know about. But specifically, this podcast grew out of a uh, initiative uh, organizing project to stop a federal prison from being built here in our county. And obviously, we relied a lot on both of your work. Through that process, through just trying to understand how prisons get cited, you know, what are kind of some of the vulner- vulnerability points that we could put pressure on, on these agencies trying to do this. Um, so we owe quite a bit to you, uh, you know, as do many of the people here in this county. Um, and, you know, Probably didn't didn't even know about Letcher County until maybe very recently. I don't know. Maybe maybe you did. You probably know Sylvia Ryerson. She had done a a work about the the prisons that had prop, popped up around where we live, and um, and her work was also very beneficial to us as well. And um, so yeah, so no, it's very appropriate that we would have you um, both on right now. Um, I think you know I, when I first reached out to Craig. Like One of the major reasons I wanted to have you on right now is because there was um, an article in the New York Times a few months ago that, I I don't know, we found very interesting, and Craig had done a a Twitter thread about it that I, have again, found very useful, and I saw a lot of parallels to other towns around where we live in central Appalachia that have prisons, either state prisons or federal prisons. The article was in the New York Times. It was titled, Nothing Will Be the Same, A Prison Town Weighs a Future Without a Prison. And it's about a town in Northern California called Susanville. It has two prisons, uh, one of which will soon be co- closing. Um, it sounds like there might be several different reasons for why it's closing, and maybe we'll get into that. Um, but it kind of went on to maybe like highlight why this is catastrophic for the the town, but the framing of it, I don't know. I think we all here um, are familiar with probably who planted this story and why it was run when it was run. I was wondering if you guys could maybe just tell us a little bit about Susanville. Like, wh- what is its story? What does this article get wrong about it? Uh, you know, what's been happening there and what's happening now?
3: Susanville is, a, as you say, it's a, it's a small town in North. Uh, East California. So it's on the east side of the Sierra Nevadas. Uh, It's easier to get to, um, like if you wanted to do shopping at a place bigger than Susanville does, you'd go an hour and a half south to Reno into Nevada. So that's like the closest bigger city. Um, The economy there has been um, largely mining, forestry, and cattle uh until the first prison opened well there were two things that happened in the 40s and 50s the first prison opened in susanville and in the 40s the u.s army built an army base just south of susanville in a place called hurlong as a place to store ammunition that they thought would be safe from japanese bombers well But for the Pacific theater. Right. Um, Needless to say, there's still a lot of ammunition stored there, but that site has become the uh, place in which the U.S. Army and other armed forces destroy outdated munitions. Wow. So every afternoon at 4 o'clock, there's a huge explosion in the middle of the desert. Oh, my God. Toxins from these (sighs) munitions that have just been blown up float up into the air.
0: That's incredible. Um,
3: in the early aughts, a federal prison was sighted right down the road from that munitions depot. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that the Times gets wrong, and I, I suspect it's a reporter who doesn't understand how rural economies work, there are only two prisons in Susanville, but there's another one half an hour away. And the people in that prison live the same sorts of places that the people who work in the two susanville prisons work which may or may not be the town of susanville but according to the census about half the people in the city limits of susanville are incarcerated incarcerated. incredible um the other thing i think that is worth talking about in terms of that story is that um I was up there in the aughts helping some local people try to fight this proposed federal prison. And most of them worked for fish and game or forestry. And they said that apart from the prison guard population, the most substantial source of employment were the state and federal governments, but not in their carceral aspect, in their forestry management, fish and game, da, 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 Right. So you know, I met some people who I think were growing a little reefer up in the mountains in the in for part of the season, and doing like game surveys for the U.S. government, and that's how they made their money. They lived in trailers. Um, so the question of, I mean, the 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 closure of one prison in Susanville is going to impact the local economy, but there are two prisons and an army base, still left for this town that has fewer than 10,000 free world residents.
0: Right. It, and I would imagine that the prison probably doesn't employ that many people, just from what we've seen locally. I mean, it's weird, because prisons are able to, you know, swing a lot of weight around when it comes to municipal policymaking and and that kind of thing, but it doesn't actually employ very many people, um, and so maybe that, that's another reason why the framing of this was kind of strange. As, I think, as you pointed out, Craig, like in many ways, it was a victory of the prison guard union and the chamber of commerce. This this story, anyways, like they probably, if they didn't outright just reach out to the New York Times and say, "Hey, do this story," then they, you know, very much the reporter was more sympathetic to them. Than the people incarcerated there, uh, it's it sounds like anyways.
1: Yeah, I I just want to interject here that the reporter um, spent a lot of time talking to people who know us in California related to some other story he had done, and they spent a lot of time explaining to him that he should talk to at least me, if not both of us, once he'd gone up to Susanville to do his repertorial duties Mm -hmm. and he swore he would and i await the email
0: (laughs) (laughs) maybe there's a sequel coming
4: (laughs) i I, i'm curious because i know the way things work here you know like in in particular in places like where we're from where there's you know um you know the tax bases are small; there's not a ton of political organization that kind of thing, and so the things we get foisted upon us are obviously like prisons and then like landfills, those type of things how What's the process for like military bases? Is it kind of the same calculus or is it is it like I don't really have a whole lot of experience with that because there's nothing like that kind of in the mountains, really, I guess down at like Fort Sumter in South Carolina, maybe but it, it, is, is, is that another one of those things that like sort of gets put on people like as like this will be like an economic development thing or like is there any sort of connection, you know what I'm saying, to like those types of sort of like projects that nobody wants?
1: Well, you know, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Uh, the, the history of the expansion of military bases in the United States is actually a bit different from the proliferation of what you are pointing at as industries of last resort. So incinerators, landfills, prisons, uh, feedlots, those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, With the military, uh, as the U.S. uh, Department of War transformed itself into the Pentagon uh, after the, the close, the final shots were fired and bombs dropped at the end of World War II, most of that expansion looked to people on the ground like a very welcome, very big development opportunity. And it generally was not the case for many bases. I won't say this is universally the case, that many people objected to the bases. And indeed, the bases fit into or transformed local economies in ways that uh, generally provided a little higher than normal um, related jobs, what we call multipliers, you know, out out, off the base, uh, opportunities for civilian employment on the base, and so on and so forth. Now, of course, all of that is fraught. Like if you've ever read Homefront by Kathy Lutz about uh, Fort, what is it? in North Carolina.
0: Bragg? They- is it Fort Bragg? Fort Bragg. Fort yeah. Bragg
1: you see like how fraught it is. But anyway, that's a bit different, a bit different. And uh, certainly a place to store and then explode munitions would fall more squarely into the industries of last resort category than the bases um, that kind of united uh, uh, a swath of the continental United States from the Northeast down to the South across the Southwest and up the West Coast that some people call the gun belt.
0: Right. And in the case of California, I mean, it seems like California probably more than a lot of other states, that relationship with the military industrial complex was really what made it what it is, correct? Like it kind of in a way complemented the university system. And I don't know, I think you call it or, or Mike Davis or, or, you know, it's like the military Keynesian state. It's kind of like, it's kind of like what allowed them to provide quote unquote for people, um, you know, under the guise of this kind of like militaristic expansion, I suppose.
1: That's really true. And, and to go back to your, uh, neck of the woods, um, while the Tennessee Valley Authority might not be, you know, directly implicated in the landscapes where you live and live or, and play, um, the Appalachian Commission that links, you know, southern Ohio all the way down through Appalachia to, to its southernmost um, um, uh, regions uh, turned to the Tennessee Valley Authority allegedly to bring the isolated communities of Appalachia into the larger uh, political economy starting in the 1920s, but more forcefully uh, in the run-up to and after the Second World War. And what we know about the TVA is that the power that it produced, and I mean the electrical power that it produced, mostly flows into the military bases and labs and so forth in the South, And mostly bypassed, just like the highways, the communities (laughs) that allegedly were the objects of care and incorporation.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. You've got Oak Ridge right there in Tennessee, you know, where they put the plutonium in the bombs or whatever. I mean, it's it's really grim. Um, Well, you know, just getting back to Susanville, like I think that you had pointed out in Golden Gulag, Rosie, that like for for a lot of communities in California in the 80s and 90s Susanville was kind of like the model prison town like they touted it as the place where this had worked and where it had lifted you know like the rising tide like all the boats and everybody was was happy with it um I think particularly you pointed out uh, Corcoran which was a community in in uh, I don't really know California geography that well I think it's maybe southern California right and Susanville is more in the north um corcoran sounded a lot like our community here in the sense that um it had lost in their sense it was agriculture in our sense it's coal mining but they were their leaders in their community these uh, these boosters were looking for a solution and they were asking the state for a prison and they had pointed out susanville as an example and so um you know we reread that chapter about corcoran and it was really astonishing i mean it's um I, I think it's uh Cro Croplands Capitalism. I can't remember the name the full name of the chapter. I'm sorry. But you know, it's about it's about this town. And like I said, when we were organizing against this prison here, it's just stunning to see the similarities and all of the um like rhetoric and tactics they use just, just even down to like the most minute level, for example, them saying like the prison will unlock the doors to your economic, like they use the exact same rhetoric here. Like, is it, you know, why did they do that? Did they workshop it in California and then like export it elsewhere? Or, you know what I mean? Like, why is it uniform across the board? I wonder, is there? Well,
1: you might have your own ideas. I'll, I'll, I'll take a first pass at answering. Um, There is certainly a circulation of people and ideas and quote unquote studies, many of which are pretty lame, um, that um, state prison agencies, the federal uh, DOC and uh, more local boosters, county, city, municipality, boosters turn to to figure out how to make this thing happen where they're at. So the kind of language about, uh, uh, you know, how to describe uh, a coming prison, uh, one could trace, you know, emerges in some studies and then circulates and people go to conferences and junkets. So it's not conspiratorial, but they definitely get together. Like they definitely get together and learn from each other and, and follow certain uh, patterns. For example, it was very common in California and other places that I have done work in and studied, where the person showing up to talk about how great the prison is going to be is a woman because then a woman seems to symbolize, well, there's nothing to be afraid of. Right. Because I wouldn't be here talking to you about it if there were and so on. Yeah. Um, do you have other ideas?
3: Uh- Only that, I guess the only other thing I would add to that is that um, in the same ways that they study what works and doesn't work, and they network those ideas at national conferences, through newsletters, on websites, et cetera, et cetera, I guess I have two things to say. One is one of the reasons that shows like yours are so important is that we don't have national conventions in which our employers send us to get together for a long weekend and we do panels and workshops with each other and say, this is how we stop the prison in Letcher County. Now here's how you can stop your prison, right? right. They're doing that. They're doing that every year on taxpayer dollars because these are public employees who are going off to do these things. Right. The other thing is they're studying us. And they are learning what you did successfully in Letcher County, and they're trying to figure out how to get around it. So for example, the person who headed the push for four new jails in New York City is someone who we have worked with in the past on how to stop jails going into towns. And she knows that literature backwards and forwards. She's done organizing. And so she was able to come up with a strategy to counter a lot of the stuff that we and she had been doing. Wow,
2: it's profound. How did that feel?
3: Bad, bad. Oh my! I would would (laughs) use stronger language, but I don't know like (laughs) (laughs) what your familial (laughs) warning level is. I know
2: you're in good company here. (laughs) Yeah, go
1: wherever you want to, (laughs) Craig. Tom's
2: got the cuss the cuss box. He'll drop a quarter in for you.
1: No wonder. Cuss bomb about that one. Cuss bomb. My (laughs) biggest failure ever. From star pupil to arch enemy. Yeah. I mean, oh
2: my like, God. It was the really
1: betrayal. Profound. Yeah. And and but to to go back to you know the the bottom up stuff that I know all of you observed and probably tried to do some work to to change the course of um, in the struggle there where you're at is that the the boosters use a language that seems so self-evidently good, right? Jobs yeah. is like the magic word in the United States of America where work is at the yeah. center of the possibility of being alive, yeah. forget about maybe having healthcare. Right. So job is magical um, and boosters know that. And anyone who shows up and says, but they go, what are you telling us about these people who need jobs? Um, th- there's that. The second thing is that the boosters very um, carefully combine uh, into uh, you know these power blocks where they've got somebody who uh, stands uh, to benefit and who promotes really actively, they are benefiting from getting that land that's lying idle or under producing into a sale, which is all they're concerned about, to get some number of of people in, you know, whatever civic organizations, faith community and so forth to step up and say the jobs thing. And to talk about the future in, in terms, not only of the employability of people in the labor market who are out of the labor market locally, but also to talk about the future in a very sentimentally charged way about Mm -hmm. the kids. Yeah. So the kids can stay. Mm -hmm. And that is very hard to talk against unless you can just kind of show the kids left, the kids left, the kids left, or the kids got locked up. The kids got locked up, which was something we were managed. We managed to do rather powerfully unexpectedly um, talking with kids in the region around Corcoran's in central California who grew up being afraid of pesticides because of agriculture, but also afraid of police and prisons because that's where they saw their future leading. Right.
4: In our case, we had the advantage of our local oligarchs not really being what you would term uh, exemplars of excellence. So they would be like, we're going to, we're going to start a virtual gun range at the high school and we're going to teach them how to shoot for, to train them to be these prison guards. And it's like, okay, let's, Let's say that's not batshit insane just on the face of it. But like what are they supposed to do? Just like kinda hang out for four years till they're like old enough to like carry a gun and then go be COs or whatever. It's like it's just even by their own logic it's ridiculous. It makes no sense in terms of the like how we're gonna train up our youth to, you know, hold these jobs or whatever.
2: Yeah, and and you talking about the jobs narrative, I wonder if you've experienced this, the I feel like that That piece of it was um, what made um, organizing so difficult, in particular because so many of the people that we were used to organizing with, that we had done water quality work with, that we had worked with to um, hold mining companies accountable, a lot of those people were like, well, we can't fight all the jobs. You know, and they were just checked out, and it, like we're not on board. And 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 at first, it felt like our only allies were nimbys. <laughs> it was like, well, how, do, are we going to work with these people? It just became, it was just a very bizarre.
0: Yeah, and that's why we we had done this thing, and it's actually fascinating because throughout this process, you get to display all the contradictions and all the sort of hypocrisies that the the boosters put out there and everything. But like the timeline of events is that they had talked about this prison coming to our community for like 10 years. And then out of the blue one day they say, all right, we got the money for it. Our Congressman Hal Rogers, who's the longest serving Republican congressman in Congress, uh, actually, um, you know, he, he's got the money for it. And it's coming and it's coming to your county. $444 million prison. It's coming. And so what we did is we said, well, like you know and we did this big protest that got a lot of press and everything we said like well, we'll why does why do we have to get 444 million dollars in the form of a prison like you know why is it not just why can't we just have that money for other things and we you know created a kind of online forum where people could throw out their ideas of things that they would like to see done with that money and and it was fascinating because you you got to watch them backpedal. You, they were on their heels, you know. They, and and basically at the end of the day, they just had to say, well, this is a this is a done deal. So why would you lift a look a gift horse in the mouth? And then our messaging was always like, it's not a done deal. Like this money has not the bu- prison has not been built yet. Until the bulldozers are moving, the money can be spent any way we wanted to um and it it just it was fascinating because like once you had brought them to that point they basically just had to admit that what they wanted was a prison even though that they had the entire time said well we didn't want this at first it's like well you you pretty you obviously do otherwise you would be fighting for something else um but i don't know it's a fascinating example of like how you know um You know, organization can reveal the kind of contradictions of of your opponent in a way.
4: What's interesting after that push that that I thought happened too was, so for example, in the years, in the intervening years sort of after the, like the height of like the criminalization of the opioid thing, you had things that certainly are not perfect, but things like drug court that took a less punitive approach to... Like, how do you deal with people that have been arrested for soft drug crimes? And it kept a lot of people, you know, out of, out of jail, all these kinds of things. And I noticed after that a lot of those people that had seen firsthand, like, some of the successes of things like that could kind of get on board with, like, our messaging sort of around that. I mean, to the degree that they were aware of it, you know, anyway, Uh But yeah, like, like, like it's like even people that weren't necessarily aligned with us politically at least could have a vision of how you could do things differently. Right. guess is what I'm trying to say. When
3: we were fighting against uh, a prison in Delano, California, which is about half an hour south of Corcoran, um, uh, a New York Times reporter interviewed Ruthie and wrote up actually a very good story in the New York Times uh, about this prison. Um, and in, after she had interviewed Ruthie, she went and talked to the, the mayor of the town, and uh, the, she says to the mayor, Professor Gilmore tells me that of the 1,500 jobs that this prison is going to provide, they estimate that no more than 77 are going to go to local residents, and that those are very likely going to be the, the lowest wage jobs in the prison And it turns out there was another story that happened a a year or two later when the prison advertised for two $17,000 a year clerical jobs. 800 people lined up to get those.
2: Oh, my God.
3: So the reporter says to the mayor, so why are you supporting this? And the mayor said, the state of California didn't offer me $335 million to do with what I want. The state of California is offering me a 30, $335 million prison. And we are so poor here, and we have such high unemployment, I can't turn my back on 77 jobs. 77 low-wage jobs would help our town. Yeah. And I think if you're asking me, is it a waste of, my, of $335 million? Yes. Am I going to oppose it? No, because I want those jobs. And that was sort of the, you know, the barrel he was over was – it wasn't a question of what could it wasn't, you use it as an organizing strategy. What would you do with $400 million or what could we do with $400 million? I think that's a great strategy, but in reality, they're not just going to give you that money. Right. Right. So it's, it's then like, okay, when people stand up at the meeting and say, well, tell me Terrence, can you call DC and uh, tell them here's what we're going to do with the 400 million instead, and we'll get it anyway. Then we're kind of, that's one of the places we get stuck.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Mm.
1: Although I just, I want to say this is true. And yet there's a reason when we win that we win because in the cases, when we win the sort of outlines of the struggle are no, not all that different from the cases that we lose, you know, big ticket item, money coming through, not going to stick locally, and the perception that's uh, nurtured by the boosters that this thing, the prison or the feedlot or the incinerator is natural, it's necessary, and it's inevitable. So the question is, how are we going to organize or uh, arrange ourselves around this natural, necessary, and inevitable thing? But here, here's what 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 changes, I think, and what makes it possible for people to bust through, and that has to do with um, a term you used in another question you asked, and I'll just jump ahead to it, and that's the question of fragmentation and how fragmented people are, urban and rural, in every kind of way. So communities have been broken because of mass criminalization with or without incarceration. And communities are broken because of huge changes in uh, the landscape for jobs and well-being, and uh, so on and so forth. So all of that fragmentation is reality. And so when the mayor, who, like Craig said, was not opposed to us opposing the prison, he just couldn't join us to oppose the prison. Right. When the ra- ra- mayor made that um, statement, um. He was expressing a reality that could change if people were able to bring themselves together and kind of defragment all of the pieces that they'd been broken into. The pieces where people struggling for jobs were struggling against people, struggling against environmental racism and people struggling against environmental racism found themselves struggling against people who were for greater opportunities in the public schools. Right. So one of the questions that we put to ourselves or challenges, I should say, it's not a question that we put to ourselves over and over again. And that is how might we at least provisionally piece together uh, a united front from all of these, um, these disparate concerns about which people feel life and death urgency. And that includes some NIMBY people, because certainly when we first started organizing in rural California, we learned one, there's always one, and two, very often they start out NIMBY until they realize, and sometimes they do, that if they only say NIMBY, a prison is going to pop up in two years or an incinerator is going to pop up in two years. There's got to be a systematic refusal rather than a local refusal of the thing. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I think your struggle in Letcher County showed um, a way forward through. And that's what I wish we could like get together every year and trade um, <laughs> at somebody's expense, and, and and trade tips and consolidate and resources. Because, for example, when Critical re- Resistance used to have relatively regular confer- big conferences, that kind of exchange happened. That you, we can't count on people even listening to a podcast, much less reading an article or doing other things because everybody's busy. That
4: might be what we need to sow our ill-gotten podcast gain into but it's (laughs) but it's it's a a good point it's a good point ruthie i think because i think that was the subject of a lot of contention early on in our organizing because it's like that knee-jerk reaction when you have somebody particularly somebody with some standing in the community is like hell no i'm not for that but it's because of (laughs) ms13 or you know whatever other you know element is going to be coming through there and like i think the challenge becomes okay how do you how do you engage that in a way that doesn't sort of validate, you know, the sort of racisms and different isms, you know, inherent in that. And uh I think that's something that, that yeah, we had to, to work through and in the end I guess probably utilized fairly effectively. And some of those folks even had some changes of heart, you know, you know what I mean? About about some they, d-
2: they definitely did. Yeah. It was an emotional time for everybody.
0: Yeah, you know, I think there's a line in in Golden Gulag that's it. It puts it very perfectly that like the the nature of arrests is its is itself a kind of act of fragmentation because every arrest is individual, right? It's like an individual interaction with the state, and and you know, and everybody, you know, I guess what you are often being arrested for is a criminalization of, I think, as you've put it, a. A survival strategy, as some sort of survival, um, you know, mechanism, um, and uh, it, due to that sort of fragmentation, which is all over the book, you know, that's why I put it in the question. It's it's a recurring theme: fragmentation that occurs at this very macro level, it occurs at a societal level, in, in these massive, sweeping changes, down to the you know our our lives, like the familial units we're in, the households, the the individual lives lives we lead this constant movement of of fragmentation, but also restructuring. I think that that, uh, it's the dialectic, obviously, right? It's it's this process of fragmentation and and restructuring. Um, And and I guess, you know, I guess what we've outlined here of, you know, organization and kind of knitting together these um, fragments into a vision that we can all sort of use to make sense of our world is um, what we're – you know, shooting for, aiming for. I think what I wanted to talk about, especially by bringing up Corcoran, Susanville, Letcher County, where we live, is this idea, and you mentioned it earlier, earlier, Ruthie, of idle land and of surplus. <clears throat> I, I want to talk a little bit about why, why are we talking so much in this conversation about rural economies? You know what I mean? Like, this has been the dominant thing that we've all been discussing so far. Why are we talking so much about that in this conversation in reference to uh, prisons?
1: Great question. Well, although uh, in the late 18th and early through long middle of the 19th century uh, prisons uh, tended to be not all that far from urban uh, uh, centers. And in fact, some of the early ones, like um, the one in, Pen- in Philadelphia is right smack in the middle of downtown. And uh, in Trenton, New Jersey, right smack in the middle of downtown. They, they were central. But over time, as urban land use changed and as um, the sort of seesaw, if you will, of capital back and forth to urban and rural landscapes changed, um, it, it seems that uh, prison at all over the place look to rural land that um, might be um, available to move from one use to another to go through the uh, process of prison um, sighting. Now, that's a little long-winded because the fact is that the US didn't build all that many prisons altogether everywhere until this modern or more contemporary period of the last 45 or so years, a little bit more. So in that context, we can see, for example, in the Kentucky context, the shift away from coal or in the California context, shift away from certain kinds of land use or um, more intensive agriculture in one place, making surplus marginal land prone to subsidence or whatever in another place and so forth. And we can kind of follow this around the United States and see you know, really similar patterns. And then the the third thing that we can see around the United States is sometimes in places that are not necessarily strictly speaking rural, but are kind of on the small town edge, uh, the repurposing of already existing land from one kind of general social use, let us call it hospitals to another, to prison. Right. But in all cases, we are looking at the fact that the what seems to be a um, relentless move of um, uh, labor market opportunities away from rural areas, whatever their extractive activity was and into more and more urban areas or out of the U.S. altogether is what under, part of what underlies the production of idle land, which of course our indigenous comrades would say, yeah, we'll give it back to us. <laughs> We've been waiting a long time. <laughs> But I guess the other, the other thing I would throw
3: in here is that um, whether the land is literally being surplused, and a lot of it is, um, the other thing that's happening is that, uh, as Ruth was saying, a lot of agriculture and a lot of other extractive industries become more and more mechanized. So it might be that coal is still being mined. It certainly is the case that cotton is still being grown and harvested but it takes far fewer people to harvest a ton of a bale of cotton than it did 30 or 40 years ago, which means those people are surplus, but it also means that the town in which they used to live, the towns in which they shopped, the petty bourgeois in those towns is desperate because there are fewer people coming to the restaurants. There are fewer people buying school clothes for their kids. And those, that small town petty bourgeoisie becomes the core of let's bring a prison in. They're trying to recreate a set of customers and taxpayers. So on the one hand, the commercial people want more customers. And, um, uh, you know, I think, Tom, you mentioned that that the tax base is also suffering with fewer people in town. So they want... Taxes paid so that they can pave their roads or whatever it is the city needs to do. And it's an attempt to bring customers and taxpayers back into the county or back into the town that um, that hypes these boosters up.
4: I, yeah, I think that's a good point, Craig. And I think it's no accident that the same year that they were really pushing to get this built was the same year this report came out that the two major towns in our county – had both experienced like massive uh just depopulation. I think that like Letcher County went from something like around 30,000 people to like less than 20,000 people like from the last time of the last it wasn't the census but whenever the last time they really looked at the population. And uh and and, and, and you're right and it's like all the same sort of, you know, local oligarchs and stuff. In our case it's got Don Childers who's like the local oil magnate. Um uh, you know, he he wanted to put, like, another gas station up there where, like, the proposed prison site was, was and all this stuff. And you see all these sorts of, like, cottage industries, too, springing off of, like, this, what they perceive to be is going to be this, like, population boom based on, like, the one prison, you know, uh, industry and all that kind of stuff. And it's it's, it's interesting. It, that's uh, It's interesting that's universal. It wasn't just us, but, like, you all experienced that in other places, too.
2: And tax revenue is one of the ways they kind of got around the jobs when we were like, no, this actually isn't going to create any jobs. They ped- they peddled this theory that... Um, the county would would pass this occupational tax so that whoever did work even if they lived somewhere else whoever did work at the prison would have to pay taxes in our county and when we were trying to you know find solidarity in nearby counties that had gotten prisons and just learn from what they knew we found out even from local even from those uh, politicians that brought them there were like yeah that was a mistake they won't even pay the occupational tax because the prison the the facility has to has to cooperate and they didn't even do that they wouldn't even do that
0: (laughs) the task of the like the municipal planner is basically to keep revenue to make it stick you know where their constituency is and so they face a kind of crisis too when you know this one tax base starts to leave and you know it's interesting like in the Scenarios and, and answers we just laid out. There's two kind of phenomena we identified, which is like surplus, and then you have these surpluses built up and crisis. One of the questions I had on the list was, what is this defini- You know, this relationship between surplus and crisis, or maybe it would maybe it would even make more sense to just identify what surplus is. I know it's a, that's probably a very long answer, but <laughs> like I don't know. I don't know if you guys want to talk about go down that route in, in uh, at all.
1: I'm going to try to be really brief. So okay. surplus, uh, surplus uh, comes into being when some uh, category of uh, the productive economy isn't absorbed into the economy for the next round of production, whatever the time frame of that round is. So. Surplus land isn't absorbed in for whatever reason. Surplus labor, there's no absorption of people's ability to make, do, grow, move, and care for things in other people. Um, finance capital is the one that, as you know, I spent some time trying to figure out in Golden Gulag. Because the fact is, all of these big ticket items, we talk about $444 million that, this, and $330 million that, that's not like cash out of the bottom drawer. Right. Is somebody who's like, yeah. you know, putting into a, a <laughs> truck and driving a lecture or driving <laughs> to Keys County. Or just found the in their car. couch cushions. <laughs> it's generally, you know, revenue that's um, uh, created by selling bonds, by selling municipal bonds at, at the state or federal level uh, to raise the money to do the thing. So then we ask ourselves, well, those people who would buy those bonds, which is say people who would make a safe investment because bonds are safe as against equity investments in a for-profit business. Um, why that rather than something else? And the answer is they don't really care. As long as they know when they clip their coupon, they're going to get their 2%. They don't care if that money goes to build a prison, a school, a dam, a highway. They don't care. They care about the return, which right, gives us right. to the politics of finance capital. Right. And right. the fact that uh uh, capitalists uh, who who work in the finance realm are um, amoral and politically active. Both they they it's they really don't care. Even if they themselves, you know, will write a check for you know some good thing, some good deed. They're amoral and politically captive, uh, uh, active. So so when there's a kind of a, a, a combination of these surpluses in a particular uh, place, and that place can be big, all of California, it can be small, the city of Corcoran, it could be Ledger County, it can be you know, the EU. When these, um, this impossibility to absorb the surpluses comes into play, we've got a crisis, which is to say the society that this economy is part of and shapes, Cannot reproduce itself on the basis of already existing activities. So something new comes into being. Then something new could be a Keynesian, Keynesian welfare state. Let's hand around a lot of money, like they did, you know, in the immediate wake of the early days of the pa- pandemic, so right. that people can keep on getting what they need. Or yeah, let, me, let me interrupt and and disagree. Okay.
3: I actually think active societies can exist with significant surpluses. Uh The question is whether the surplus makes it impossible for the productive forces to continue reproducing themselves. But I think that between, let's say, 1980, roughly, and 2008, We had massively surplus populations being funneled into prisons and jails. The society was not in crisis. The productive forces were not in crisis. Families were in crisis. Individuals were in crisis. But the political economic system was was using those surpluses in ways that were not exactly productive, but they didn't keep the rest of the society from falling apart. So the question is, the, the relationship to me between surplus and crisis is, does the surplus produce a crisis such that things can't be reproduced or not? Or can the society, I mean, you know, uh, what's his name? Charles Murray famously said, you know how we should deal with poor black people? We should just build walls and keep them in their ghettos and not let them out. And that, for him, was like, we we keep them from keeping the rest of society in crisis by just keeping them out of it.
1: Well, I don't think you disagree with me. You just gave some more specific examples of of the general phenomenon.
3: So we agree. There can be major surpluses without a crisis,
0: right? Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. Well, and it does seem like. well, obviously like another surplus we haven't identified here, like you identify four in your book. Um, and the fourth that we haven't identified is state capacity, which is this myth, you know, that like there is no government anymore, like, you know, we've all defunded it and everything. We all know that's not true. The government did as you put it in the book, did not become leaner, but it did become meaner. Um wow. and so that that is um, you know, obviously like it's it, It has this sort of idled capacity from what, I don't know, what I think you identified in the book as a crisis moment in the 70s, in the late 60s, early 70s, when these surpluses weren't being able, they weren't able to be absorbed back up into the system. And so I don't know, I guess maybe what you're saying is that for a time we were running things... uh, you know, in such a way that we could reabsorb these surpluses, but maybe we are in another moment when they can't be, or at least I felt that way several times during the early pandemic. I don't know how I feel now. This, um, it seems like in my community, what's happening is that less people are going to prison and more people are either just going to jail or they are being surveilled in a way that they have no autonomy at all. Like, it feels like, and I've said this on the show, I don't know if this is universal, but it feels like in eastern Kentucky, and I I wrote this article about this last year, it feels like they have managed to find a way to, instead of move people to prisons, move the prisons to people, in the sense that, they now, um, you don't have any control over your own life because now you have to go see a counselor and piss in a cup twice a week and, you know, do all these things that may, that, you know, you're technically free. You're not in a prison cell, but at any moment you could be thrown back into a jail cell. Um, and you know, you, uh, like I said, you can't leave town or anything like that. So it, it feels like, and maybe that's kind of what the Susanville story was kind of getting at too. Like, yes, maybe prisons are closing and there are less prisoners, but I guess we should be hesitant, right, of anything that says incarceration is declining because we know that there are still these surpluses and the state needs to be able to control and manage them or else they get revved or something. You know what I mean? Like they get something like that's good. That would wind up happening. The pitchforks come out.
1: Yeah, no, this is this is a really, really great observation. I don't know if you all know James Kilgore's new book, Understanding Ecarceration, but you might want to talk with him fantastic but it's it's one of the pieces of what you just pointed to uh terrence so clearly about how um uh various um governmental uh levels are outsourcing prison and unfreedom to people's living rooms yes and and outsourcing and and people are paying so people who are thus unfree are having the sort of dual drain of their time which is the non-renewable resource whether you're locked up or out all all you've got is the time you've got and it never comes back or um, and or money because the the cost of that outsourcing falls on the household that's providing, you know, room and board and shelter, but also on the person in the ankle shackle who has to pay the cost of having the ankle shackle on their ankle and so on and so forth. So as well as the the cost of uh, perhaps not being able to, you know, go to work if there's a job for them at all. And thinking though, to go back to the general question of state capacity, um, uh, reminds me of something I've been, I've been thinking about a lot. And that is uh, whatever the conditions were in the late 1970s, as you were just talking about Terence, that sort of threw up at a variety of different scales uh, and intensities, surpluses, that then in the 80s and 90s, people organized power blocks to congeal in a number of ways that included prisons. Those people, or at least the people who benefited from that uh, uh, congealing, including prison guards, cops, sheriffs, and so forth, are extremely well organized. And when there's a big shift in political economic activity at the city level, at the municipal level, county level, state or federal, they are first in line to say, we have a solution to the problem you are describing. Mm-hmm. Whatever that problem is, whether it's school shootings or a rise in crime or um, sexual harassment, I mean, whatever it is, they're the ones who say, or mental illness, mm-hmm. we have a solution and if you give us the money, we will solve it. So there's not only the you know, constant flow of dollars, to the forces of organized violence to continually, quote unquote, reform themselves as though they're ever going to reform themselves out of killing George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or all of the people that they kill, but also they are ready, willing and able to uh, marshal the forces of fiscal and bureaucratic power of the state to make more of what they then can control. And I'll say that in a related way, many of the agencies that exist to um, uh, create opportunities for health education and welfare have imitated the mission of organized violence to justify themselves. So notably the United States Department of Education has a SWAT team. Yeah. But more low down, it's cops in schools, but also schools taking on a policing function, whether by force of order of the state of Texas or in other ways, that that that, that movement has been so profound that today, again, I'm just going to repeat, we're fighting on different terrain from the terrain we were fighting on even 20 years ago.
4: Yeah, there's a there's a push in our state house now. And correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Terrence or Tanya, but, like, what they're trying to shoot for is, like, every school, uh, what do you call it, jurisdiction or whatever, school district can have their own police force. Like, so you go from, like, having, like, a a resource officer there that's there to break up fights or whatever to, like, yet another full-blown police agency that's under the banner of the school district.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's... You know it's fascinating i've talked a lot a bit a lot about this with our friend jack norton but in the eyes of a lot of these municipal planners you you know so you're right uh ruthie like they go to the planners and they say well we have a solution to these crises and then the planners like the way they work backwards from that is they say like okay well um you know uh, we may not always have civilians for civic infrastructure anymore but we will always have pr- uh, prisoners. We will always have people in prison and jail. So they can justify these municipal bonds and this public spending in a way that builds up their own local police forces and their own jails. Um, and so I, I, don't, I don't know. It's another example of how you see that kind of like, you know, relationship between surplus and crisis and, and how it, it is terrifying, right? But it's also at the same time. Because it's crisis, as you've pointed out in the book, it it reveals also these sort of rupture points. These points where there's inter intervention is um, possible, and and you point out like in your book, in the you know the second to last chapter, you've profiled this organization, which was very fascinating. Um, mothers reclaiming our children, our mothers' rock, you know, and and they. Um, you know basically started from a, a, a very basic premise which was you know our our children are um, being taken away from us where are they going why you know and this was in the early 90s this was in the wake of the Rodney King you know the LA riots and everything this was a long time ago and things have changed a lot since then but I think the overall premise is the same is that you start with crisis you look for points of like rupture and intervention and you and you work out from there um, you know without i guess getting too deep into the weeds on um you know that organization or our organization here in Letcher County i was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about and this is the one of the last questions i have on here like how do organizations like mother's rock or even defund the police you know or black lives matter or like ours here in letcher county how um how do they build power and and maybe even a more general question is what even is power because you talk a lot a bit about uh, about this in the book and it's a very fascinating topic in in my opinion
1: well i i I stick with the old i think political science or sociology definition of power power is the capacity to get somebody else to do something they wouldn't do on their own and so that could be really icky but it also could be really great so the example i always give is craig is my best friend he has power over me. He can get me to be happy. I cannot do that on my own. So that's power, also. Uh-huh. So it it doesn't necessarily come tinged with violence, even though it might come tinged with you know many tears over the forty five years we've been together trying to like stay happy, but <laughs> managed to do it. So so power, I think, for a lot of people who have not had the. Um, the opportunity to throw themselves into uh, the kind of organizing that you've managed to do in Letcher County. Um, People think power is a thing. It's over in the corner of the room. And if we can just make our way to the corner of the room, we will grab the thing and then we'll have power rather than we make it. We make it by defragmenting, you know, the various people who uh, might Um, line up with us against this thing by explaining um, patiently uh, in the registers that people are willing and excited to hear, however that might happen, um, how the future as presented by the power block and oligarchs is not the only possible future. That, That doing this kind of work together sometimes across really long distances is how power is made and it can dissipate really quickly but it's actually made um made by people
3: i guess the other thing i would say is that um the mothers and others who were in mother's rock um were not new it was not new to them or their families that there would be state violence against children or young adults in the family. Um, that was something that they, their families had multi-generational experience of. But what happened in California in the 80s and 90s was an escalation of that violence, state violence, in ways that made it both recognizable but particularly horrifying to those mothers. And, you know, some of their mothers and grandmothers would have been part of anti-lynching campaigns. Again, they were not the first people in their, in their families to do organizing against against this sort of violence. But what they saw was more and more of the people in their family were going to prison longer and longer. More were being beat up by the cops, more were being killed by the cops. The capitalist, racial capitalist crisis in California, as you were saying, had fissures that went everywhere into society. The way those fissures showed up in black and brown households was that it was destroying the households. And it pushed the mothers, who might not individually have been particularly involved politically up to that point, to say, my job as a mother is not simply to be in the home. It's not simply to be in the place of worship. It's not simply to work with the educational system. I need to go to the police station. I need to go to the courthouse. I need to band together with other mothers and figure out what we can do to get our kids back. And so the crisis produced not just an opportunity, but a necessity for these women. None of them saw this as an opportunity. They were like, I'm doing what I have to do. We're going to do what we have to do to get our kids back. What do we need to do? And so that's a place in which I think they were open to anything. I mean, they were like, I mean, they were not going to, many of them, for example, were Christians. They weren't going to give up God, I don't think. But I mean, you could say to them, we need to topple capitalism. And they go, well, what do we do? What's the next step? Like, well, they were open, like, bring, bringing their, understanding that it wasn't just their family. It was all kinds of families like them. They understood that there was a systemic problem and the system had to change even if they didn't have a particularly clear idea how the system worked, but they wanted to know that. I mean, one of the things that they said to Ruthie when Ruthie was uh, um, starting to research her dissertation that became golden Gulag was finish it. Like we need that. Get it back, get it, get it, get it to us. So they were like her original um, commissioning editors, you might say for that book.
1: (laughs) And, you know, I'll add that, um, you know, I didn't show up at Mother's Rock researching a dissertation. I went to graduate school after already working with Mother's Rock. And while I was part of the Rock, what, what we did to learn about what was going on from any angle that anybody could bring up was we would have these Saturday workshops. And somebody, very often me, because I was like the resident nerd, but not the only nerd, um, was, you know, somebody would go off and and find out about, so what is this three strikes? Or so what is the relationship between the youth authority and the adults authority? So what is, so what, so we had all kinds of people come and people would show up on Saturday at this Quaker meeting house. that was a, a, a neutral place in South Central that was still beset really Significantly, with struggle between and among various street organizations to learn stuff, and I can't remember if I tell this story in the book, but it was really stunning to us when, um, after a Mother's Rock meeting that happened out in, on the east side of L.A. in in the city of Pomona, in deindustrialized downtown Pomona, all, already a story about surplus and crisis, um, a guy who was a an attorney. Uh, offered us his law library and said, "You want to go and research this whatever law it was? Go ahead. You yeah. can. You can. Ha- you can be in there all day. Nobody's going to throw you out. It's yours." So we go in. Me, you know, nerd Craig, bookseller, best read person I know. Friend of two friends of ours with PhDs, which I didn't have then. We could not make head or tail. Like we didn't know how to crack the code. Yeah, like, we had no idea what we were doing, and we were willing, literate students of this and we said aha the opacity of all of this is in itself meaningful and undoing the opacity lifting curtain after curtain after curtain after curtain to go back to the fragmentation problem is exactly what we all have to do so um one of the uh the keys that that I learn over and over and over again, we learn over and over and over again, is if when we're doing things, to quote Marian Kaba, it's things that are worthwhile doing are worthwhile doing, only worthwhile doing with other people, that is true. It is also true that if you're part of this tiny, tiny cadre of people against something that everybody else thinks is necessary, natural and inevitable, then the only way to organize is to organize with organized people. So the, you know, Mother's Rock developed in the context of uh, another organization that was leaving one position and taking up a new pre- presence in the community and working with people in unions, like against the big guards union and all of the police and so on and so forth unions, had been um, really powerful for us because within unions, as you might well know, there's been a lot of struggle in the rank and file to democratize or redemocratize those formations. So to throw out the old guard at the top, but also to use the power of organization to win things for the people. Uh, Faith communities, the same kind of thing where it was relatively easy for us to persuade people kind of at the upper echelons of whatever, you know, name your whoever, Methodists or African Methodist or this or that or Baptist, harder to get like on the ground in the various congregations that very often would ignore the message coming down from above saying criminalization is wrong, it's against God's will. So getting in there with organized people, with students and so forth, with nurses, using prayer. Um, and one other example I wanna give of people uh, who uh, self-organized and really set an incredible um, model for us that we followed without even in some ways at the outset realizing we were following it. And that was the Mothers of East Los Angeles. And they organized themselves in the early 80s when we weren't doing any work along these lines uh, in East L.A. to stop the state of California from building a prison in their neighborhood. And they were mostly housewives, working class Mexican-American housewives. And they're, they just got their hackles up because the Sacramento, the state government said, well, we know that some huge number of future prisoners are going to come from communities like East L.A., so we're going to put the prison there because that's who should bear the brunt of the prison. So to go back to the why rural, this is another reason. And the mom said, what the entire fuck? Why do you all think that, like, our kids are going to prison? Like, what? what is this? Right. So they fought, and it was really hard because... Um, they, they were in, you know, CIS had households and their husbands were worried and some of them lived in public housing and they were afraid of, you know, being, you know, de-housed and so on and so forth. But they organized and organized and organized. They had a, a priest from a church that helped them organize from the Catholic church and eventually they won. But they weren't, satisfied with that win because they still wanted to know why did they assume our kids were going to prison Mm -hmm. and like racism is the answer but that's not an answer you can like do anything with it's like what, what about racism right so they got interested in well why did so many of our kids um miss so much school and fall behind in school and the answer was asthma and the asthma was produced by the their proximity to diesel exhaust in the roadways mm. of Los Angeles. So they became environmental justice advocates. So when we finally got urban and rural together, and environmental uh, justice advocates in urban and rural places together, we got one of the founders of the Mothers of East LA to come and keynote that because we just like had this art. We had unions, urban people, rural people. We had people speaking all these different languages. I mean, we had Hmong, Japanese, Urdu, Spanish, English, and so forth. Like, we, this is possible, but it's also necessary.
0: Yeah. Well, I like the image of multiple people sort of taking over a law library for a day and trying to piece together this, you know, long, decades-long process that had kind of gone, you know, gone down, you know, like you said, the the sort of, Motion is fragmentation and trying to piece it all together. I was, it's funny you say that. Like, I was explaining to my girlfriend the other day that, like, when I think of Golden Gulag, when I think of the book, like, in the same way that, like, when I think of Capital, like, Das Capital, like, I think of, like, a diamond. And the reason why, the reason why, like, I say that about Golden Gulag is because you included the bibliography and it's, like, a good one fourth of the book. And so you really get to see how much, like, just organic matter was, you know, condensed down into this understanding of, and it sounds like it was a collective understanding, a, a process of multiple people trying to figure out this thing at once. But, you know, you see how much information and data out there was s- sort of condensed down into this clear and concise explanation of, of how, you know, why the world is, or this aspect of the world is the way it is. And um, and so, you know, in that way, that is also uh, building power. You know, you are with other people <laughs> trying to understand this very complicated process. And, you know, especially coming from us, like I said to you at the very beginning of the, of the program, we are very indebted to that, to that very basic act of people just assembling in a room and trying to piece together how this happened. And uh, we wouldn't have been able to do what we did if, that wouldn't have happened. You know and so you know it's this process of building off of things, you know, and making these linkages and connections that you don't even know, you know, like that you're putting out into the world and they and they build up like that and that that is an inspiring I think image to um uh to to sort of, you know, go forth with.
2: Yeah, we uh we made copies of the prison town scene for our library. <laughs>
0: Yeah. You. <laughs> that you all put together
2: <laughs> uh, back in the day. We were like, okay, we're just going to leave this everywhere. <laughs> and then we built a whole workshop around it. Yeah. Oh, cool.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. Well, you know, and so I don't I don't. I don't really have much else. I don't know, Tom, Tom, Tanya, if you guys had anything you wanted to ask, or if you guys wanted to talk. I mean, I. You know, you have a footnote in there about the Marxist theory of the falling rate of profit, and we could go. On, we could riff on that for the next thirty minutes if you want. To. But y'all also <laughs> trying to
4: get to London before uh, you
1: know,
4: right? A decent hours. So.
1: That'll be our next episode. That sounds good. <laughs> wow. That sounds good. We'll table that. One. Okay. <laughs> all right
3: um <laughs> let, me, let me let me offer this one this this will be my closing uh, my closing thought um i was you know i was taken with your uh comparison of golden gulag and kapital and uh one thing that those two um books have in common is that they come out of struggle yeah. they don't as inspiring as they might be as books for people who are not yet engaged in struggle uh, the people who wrote them wrote them coming out of particular political, economic, racial, and gender struggles um, as ways to provide tools for their comrades in those struggles. A clear understanding of what we're up against, a clearer notion of what the road forward might be, what those obstacles in the road might be, and how to get around them or over them or how to blow them up. And You know, I have been simultaneously encouraged and uh, discouraged at the explosion of literature about prisons, policing, and jails over the last 10 or 15 years. And a lot of the stuff that I read, you know, it's not bad writing, it's not bad scholarship, but I'm like, why did you write this? Like, what, what question are you trying to answer with this book And who on the ground who's trying to do something is asking that same question. And I'm not suggesting that anything that doesn't come out of that sort of response is worthless. That's not my point at all. But that um, I fear that people who are trying to educate themselves, there's, I meet a lot of people who think they need to educate themselves a lot before they start fighting. And what we know about how the state works, what we know about how the police works, what we know about how prison works is 90% from fighting them and then coming up against the problem and then going back and reading to try to solve the problem that we encountered in the struggle on the ground. And I think people need to think, people people need to embrace that they don't need to know everything before they start fighting. And in fact, if they don't start fighting, they're not going to learn the right things in the first place. So that's going to be my my parting, uh, parting remark. And I think, you know, the sort of people you guys have on the show, I would hold up as other exemplars of that style of praxis and theory.
1: And in the interest of world peace, I'm in agreement with you. <laughs> <laughs> in the interest of a, of a nice flat
0: across the pond. <laughs> uh, well, I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, we know uh, Tanya Tanya has talked a lot about how, like you know, we've studied the world quite a bit. We know quite a bit about it, but like, what good is that going to do you to just know about the world? You know, and it, exactly, it's like Mark said. The point is to change it, and as you pointed out, like Golden Gulag is a perfect example of a, um, of a document of literature that was written both from struggle and with that in mind to continue the struggle, and so it's a challenge to not just us, but also to, you know, anybody that is trying to understand the world, like exactly as you said, Craig, like what, what is the question we're trying to answer here and what are we trying to do? Um, so, you know, um, we thank you both for coming on. Uh, like I said, been a long time in the making, but, um, it definitely lived up to expectations. We can love to have a, a round two. We'll be like the New York Times reporter who you're waiting to get an email from. But uh... <laughs> We'll make good on it. Though. We'll make good on it, for sure.
1: All right. I'd be happy to do round two. And I never say that if I don't mean it. Ever. <laughs> oh, <okay. All> right. <laughs> Thank great. you so much. Great. Thanks, you know, This is really
4: special. So. This All was right. great.
1: Thank you. This Thank was great. You. And I really hope, not only that we can do another round, but in real life, I hope. Yes. Yeah. I I that. That. All right. Thank you. All right. Be safe. Have Bye, nice. guys.
0: Be careful. Bye.